our scripture for today comes from James chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Follow along with me, if you will. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes in to your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing the, the fine clothes and say, here, a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there and, or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom that he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. I have a question as we begin our consideration of these precious words of Scripture. Could it be said of you that you are a person of discerning sensibilities? Discerning sensibilities. Do not those words, discerning sensibilities, have a gentle, even sophisticated sound to them? I found that our language has so many subtle expressions within it. Words that can really seem and sound harmless, even complimentary, but have hidden and disguised meanings within them that are not at all harmless, not at all complimentary. And that is often the way it is with our language of the South. We Southerners have a personality all our own, and I must confess to you that I love our Southern personality, the manner and the demeanor with which our people hold themselves and express themselves, and especially our more senior aged people, and especially our ladies. I haven't spent much time in the North, but on those occasions that I have ventured past the Mason-Dixon line, I've immediately noticed a very distinct difference from our folks here in the South. The mannerisms and the accents and the voice inflections of our, of our Northern neighbors is not pleasing to my sensibilities. And again, I do enjoy this personality of our South, the, the charm that takes place within our conversations and within our mannerisms. Here in the South, we seem to have very few one-syllable words. And even when we do voice one of those one-syllable words, we seem to disguise it well with a drop. And we just love to say statements like, how y'all? Isn't that so much more friendly than what we hear from our northern neighbors? I also enjoy, and especially the ladies, when they ask, how are you? Again, I do confess that I love this distinct southern personality. Another question. Are such personalities and voice inflections and mannerisms a good thing? Are they a good thing? Well, I think so. I think so. But I also know that much of what we're 
being warned about here in this passage that I just read can often be hidden within our southern charm. Today I've entitled the message, The Subtlety of Partiality. The Subtlety of Partiality, with emphasis to be put on the word subtle. And hopefully by the end of the message, we'll be able to see how the sinful behavior of subtle partiality can work its way into our behaviors, into our responses, and even into our Christianity. Now, by definition, the word subtle implies hidden undertones and meetings. And yes, when used rightly, subtle words and mannerisms can be very good, and they can be kind, and they can be helpful. But subtleties can also have hidden measures of wrong intent, unkindness disguised within it. And for that reason, as I hear subtle expressions, I always try to give it a second look, a second thought, just to make sure of what I'm dealing with. I've often heard a somewhat humorous reference made to the very southern expression of, well, bless his heart or bless her heart. And the idea there, the implication is that you can say about mostly anything you want to say about someone as long as you follow it up with bless his heart or bless her heart. Perhaps you've heard that most likely on many occasions because it's what we do with our southern charm. Now, what do these things I'm talking about have to do with the truths that God wants us to receive regarding this showing of partiality? Partiality towards the people in our churches, in our friendships, in our businesses, and even within the settings of our own families. It takes place, folks. Recall that the very first distinctive description that these scriptures apply to the person of our enemy, Satan, is this very word, subtle. In Genesis 3, we read, Now the serpent was more subtle than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, here within this wording is a very distinct contrast that's being drawn between these malicious designs of Satan and the virtuous perception of Adam and Eve as they hear these words said. And subtlety is the weaponry that Satan used there to wedge his way into their minds and to tempt them. Some of the other Bible translations will use other more modern words for subtle, such as crafty, and cunning, and other such words. But they all seem to give us the same understanding of Satan's intent. And it is his desire to beguile and to bring harm to Adam and Eve. And he succeeded. And Satan wants to do the same with you and me, with those same kinds of subtle expressions that people use with us, but also that we are tempted to use with other people. And the setting of these words of our scripture that we are saying here today is an excellent opportunity for subtle mistreatment of other people. Again, whether it takes place within the church or it takes place outside the church in your other relationships. Let me read these words for us again. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Let me mention to you, the Lord's very intentional here with these words. My brothers, as believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, 
He's talking to believers. He's talking to you and me. He's not talking to unbelievers who really don't know any better. He's talking to us who should know better. And so he says, my brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, and say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit on the floor here by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Folks, this kind of circumstance is such an excellent opportunity for us to do the wrong thing. For us to do the wrong thing, and especially without even really realizing that we're doing it. We know from history that such things did take place in the past in our churches. And especially in the time when there was open discrimination against black folks. And that may still be taking place. I'm not aware of any churches that still do it, but it still may be taking place. But these verses also warn us about open discrimination within the church between the wealthy and the poor. In some of the older church buildings that I have been in, I've seen the remnants of that kind of behavior and the treatment of people in the way the seating is arranged. There are even separate rooms in some of the churches that I've seen. Rooms off to the side where those less fortunate people were supposed to sit. And they knew where they were supposed to sit. No one necessarily told them so. It was just one of those subtle, unspoken understandings. Now, it could have been that those people in those churches were welcoming everyone to come in openly. But there was also a subtle and also a not-so-subtle difference that was being made. And while some of those people truly did probably want to minister to anyone who would come in, there were also those who simply condescended, condescended. And here in this message, God puts in a warning that should be taken into consideration. He says, listen, in verse 5, listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? Over my years of working at French Camp Academy, these verses and others like them have been very convicting to me about my own behavior because when some of our wealthier donors would come onto the campus, I would rush to show them around personally and to entertain them, perhaps invite them to lunch. And no, I did not respond with the same enthusiasm with those visitors who were not big donors. And I would often question my motives. I try to soothe my conscience with the assurance that our ministry needed big donors in order to feed the kids and to pay the bills. And that was true. That was very true. But still, my behavior was questionable and probably most always wrong. Now, as for our churches, we can rejoice that those kinds of practices that are described here aren't openly being practiced in most of the Christian churches today. But these scriptures are warning us that although 
such behaviors may not be openly practiced, there's still some reason to examine the not so open behaviors that might be taking place within the church, but also within our own souls. I recall one time when I was pastoring a church, another church, and there was a strange man came in and sat down with his little daughter. One of our members caught me later and whispered to me, what was he doing here? What was he doing here? I said, he probably came to hear the message, to, to worship the Lord. Not so open behaviors still reside within many of our own attitudes. The Lord tells us in verse 8, If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. I can recall another situation that took place at that church in Holka, where I pastored for many years. During one of the Sunday Sunday school class times, a man, a stranger, came into the sanctuary where we were holding the class. And thinking back, I can recall what first went through my mind when he walked in. I remembered that I had some irritation. He was, ir- he was interrupting our Sunday school class. Thankfully, on that occasion, I quickly realized that that kind of thought was wrong. And so I instead chose another thought, and that was even one that was worse than the first. I sized the man up, and I remembered that, yes, I had seen him probably two or three or four years earlier, and he had come into the sanctuary in much the same way, and he was looking for financial help. Now, on this occasion, his clothing and his scruffy appearance and his demeanor, and knowing also that he had been there before asking for money, my thoughts went to, this man is a panhandler. He's looking for a handout. He's not interested in coming to church. Now, did you notice? Did you notice the words that I just used? There was no compassion in my words. There was no kindness, no love within my assessment of that man, no godly spiritual thoughts, only a secular evaluation of a stranger who was standing there in front of me. But again, thankfully, I didn't keep responding in that way. I quickly addressed the man to determine his reason for coming in because it seemed obvious that he had not come in to worship with us. But again, my response was not a godly, welcoming response. I was just quickly taking care of business. Now, thanks be to God, that whole matter didn't turn out quite as bad as I'm giving the indication of right now. The Holy Spirit was eventually able to wedge his way into my mind, and over the remaining few minutes that that man was with us, I was able to show some reasonably good Christian response. Now, not a best response by any means, as I've later so wished that I had shown to that man. But at least I didn't shame the Lord too much with my handling of the rest of the matter. The man did ask for money, But I left my wallet in the car, and so we went outside to retrieve my wallet. And as we go out to the car, I see that he has the rest of his family in the truck with him, a wife and a baby and two children. And he made no move to unload those children and wife to come into the church, so I concluded immediately that he was just there to get some money and then to go on his way. And yes, thankfully, along with some money, I did 
give him some words of the gospel to take with him and his family. And we prayed, and then he went on his way. But again, as I read these words here today in James 2, I was probably well on to the worst case example of the instructions that God has for us here. Yes, I eventually did some of the right things. And this man and his family were blessed, I believe. But I only did the right things, well, barely so. Let me just put it that way. Barely so. And even then, it was only because of some quick intervention by the Holy Spirit. Now, looking back on that incident, what was it that went wrong? And I had to evaluate my response. I have many times. Simply put, I was caught off guard. I was caught off guard and I wasn't, I wasn't prepared. I simply gave this man a knee-jerk reaction and not at all a Christianly answer and a Christianly behavior. And folks, as a church, you and I ought never be caught off guard in that way. It's not a good way at all to respond. I don't know if a similar incident has ever taken place here, but if it does, this church, we ought not be caught off guard. We ought to instead be prepared to respond as Christians. We ought to know right things to think, right things to do, right things to say to Him. And especially, we don't want this first thing to take place that's mentioned here in our scriptures. We don't want to judge that man. Folks, how many times have we said from this pulpit that God is sovereign? and that he is providential, meaning that if a man and his family come into this sanctuary and asks for money, he may very well have been sent this way by the Lord himself. He may not know, by the way, that he was sent here by the Lord, but that doesn't matter. The Lord does things that way. And even more, it occurs to me, and mysteriously so, we may be entertaining angels unawares. Does not that thought make you want to do things right? That God would send someone here and we want to have the right response. Now let me think again for a moment about the title of this message, The Subtlety of Partiality. What is it that often goes on in our minds when we're being confronted with one of those unannounced circumstances? For myself, and I'll let you decide for yourself. But for myself, it's a spirit of pride and a spirit that is judgmental, a judgmental spirit. It's within my soul. They seem to rear their ugly heads without me being able to first get control of them. Pride and a judgmental spirit that asks, I wonder why that man didn't just get a job. Have you thought that when you see those people standing at the red light or the stop sign with a sign that says we'll work for food, knowing that they're not going to get in the car with you and go work. And so our judgmental spirit starts to make conclusions. Why don't that man just get a job, and support his family? And then, by the way, with this man that came into our church, if I had let my judgmental spirit go on another step, it would begin to think all he's going to do probably with the money that I'm giving to him is he's probably going to go buy more drugs or more alcohol. And those children there in the truck with him will probably not see a nickel of it. That's the wrong attitude to have, folks, a judgmental spirit. Now, here in today's scripture text, James is describing a regular church setting, much like ours, 
And God is giving us guidance on how our church, this church, ought to respond to those people who might come amongst us. And it's clear that we ought to have everything in place so that we can act rightly and have the right response, do the right thing. This is the church. This is the body of Christ. And we have all the instructions that we need right inside this book to tell us what to do. It is God-breathed instructions. He tells us in 2 Timothy 3 that these words in these scriptures are God-breathed words. They're useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that you and I, the men and women of God, can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So then, may I ask you and me individually and as a church, though an incident like this may never take place in this church, should we not be ready and prepared anyway? Perhaps make a plan of some sort of who would go and speak to that stranger first. Should more than one of us go and speak to that person, especially if we were to go outside? Shouldn't we be welcoming? Shouldn't we know what we want to say and that it would have a welcoming, a truly welcoming spirit to all that we would say? Whether that person be wealthy or obviously very poor, should we not plan to forfeit perhaps our Sunday school service or even our worship service? in order to welcome those people? Should we not invite them in for perhaps some cupcakes and coffee? And if a similar circumstance were to take place with a man and his family, should we not plan to be able to help them if perhaps they might need a place to sleep to offer them for them to come into our home? Or at least perhaps take them up the highway and provide them lodging at the motel, pay for their lodging. There's several things that God is teaching us in this passage that we're studying here today. But it seems most importantly that God does not want us to allow our hearts and our minds to be caught up in having and displaying prideful and judgmental spirits. Because judging others in the manner that God describes here is sinful. It's sinful. And it's always displeasing to Him. And there's a clear warning that's ever before us that if we are not careful, we will reap what we sow. If we sow a spirit of judgment and judgmental attitudes, we will surely reap a harvest of that same judgmental behavior back towards us and towards our church. And listen to this, please. If a person is poor, they have a reason for being that way. Yes, sometimes those reasons come from wrong choices that they make. But do you notice that in these words that God does not speak about those things here? And He doesn't give you and me the right, the privilege, or the responsibility of being the judge of someone else's character. The truth is right in front of us in these words, and you and I are without excuse. We are to obey the royal law, and we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. The next time that God orchestrates a circumstance, an opportunity, we need to be ready to respond in a manner that he'll be able to say to us, well done, well done, my good and faithful servant. Listen to these words in, from First John as we close. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers.
If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us your truth. Thank you for providing for us so that we can make provisions to other people. Father, help us that your grace, as it comes to us, would flow right on through us to other people like these folks that might be in need. Help us to allow your grace to flow freely onto them. Bless us now. We thank you for your truth. In Jesus' name, amen.